Good morning, church. It's almost noon, but good morning anyway. It's very good to be here today. Um, Joelle and I are happy to be back at the Fair Plain Church. This is Joelle's home church, of course, growing up, and many of you know her. Not as many of you know me as well as you know her, but as Joelle was saying in her children's story, um, we are both about to head to Trinidad for mission service with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and we are very excited about this. A week from Monday on March 1, we will be flying out of the Chicago O'Hare Airport down to Trinidad. So the moment is finally approaching. We've been talking about this for a long time, and now we're going to be going. I'll be working as a neurologist at the Adventist Hospital um, in Port of Spain, Trinidad. So we're very excited about that. And I am glad that I can be here with you this morning to share a message from the Lord that the Lord has placed on my heart. And so before I get into the message, I would like for us to have a word of prayer. So bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath day. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us in a very special and powerful way this Sabbath day. May we block out the things, the cares of this life that would distract us from understanding the message that you want each one of us to understand today. And I pray that you would speak through me and that your words would be given. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> the message for today is entitled, The Work of the Holy Spirit in the last days. How many of you want the Holy Spirit to be working through your life? Amen. How many of you believe that the Holy Spirit is being poured out in God's church today? Amen. We see exciting things happening in the Seventh-day Adventist church in this very day. Things are happening now that 10 years ago, quite frankly, were not happening. And it's very exciting to be living in this time as we see what's happening in the world and also what's happening in the church. You know, it's interesting, Joelle and I just moved away from Loma Linda and we've been keeping track of our friends in Loma Linda on Facebook. Uh, I just looked at one report today. They had 92 earthquakes in the last few days in Redlands, California. I guess we got out just in time. Um, <laughs> But clearly, interesting things are happening, and we see the Holy Spirit moving. You see what's happening, for example, with GYC, and how God is moving on the hearts of young people to be serious about Adventism again in, this, the, in the last days. And at the same time, we see this polarization taking place, where some people in the church are saying, it doesn't matter what the Bible says about creation, we're going to teach something entirely opposite to that. So here you see a polarization, and yet God is pouring out his spirit on his people to proclaim the last day message with special force and power, and God is doing so through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to be part of the work of the Holy Spirit in the last days. Amen? Amen? You know, Ellen White tells us that when the latter rain of the Holy Spirit begins to be poured out, that people may not even realize that it's being poured out all around them. 
And we want to make sure that when the Holy Spirit begins to move, that we are among the people that have God's Spirit being poured out in our lives so that we can share the message of God's saving grace and the three angels' messages to the world. What I want to look at today is what does the Bible tell us about what the Holy Spirit will do among God's people in the last days, just before Jesus comes. Now, there are many things in Scripture that describe the work of the Holy Spirit, but we are going to look specifically in John chapter 16 today and go from there. So what I'm going to do is start in John chapter 16, verse 1. And these are the words of Christ speaking to his disciples. John chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus says, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Did this happen to the apostles? You better believe it. The, the Jewish church persecuted and even murdered and put to death the apostles of Christ. You think of James. He was put to death. Peter was going to be put to death. The Jews who were the professed people of God persecuted God's apostles, his saints, his people. And Jesus told them, this will happen to you, that when they kill you, they will think that they are doing God's service. Verse 3, and these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. And I would say as God's people today, it is way too late in earth's history to not know God. Here you had a group of professed, I guess you could call them Christians, people who were the professed people of God, the Jews, coming to synagogue every Sabbath, and they did not know the Father, and they did not know Jesus. And it is very possible that we as God's people today can come to church every week, and we don't even know Jesus. We don't even know the Father. And if we don't, we will do the very same thing that the Jews did to the true Christians back in that day. May that not be so of us. Verse 4, but these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? You know, this is a side point, but Jesus was basically trying to tell them, hey, I'm going to the sanctuary after I finish my work here, and you're not even asking me what I'm going to do after this. They thought he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And you know, in the Christian world today, so many people are confused about the way Jesus is going to come back the second time. You hear things about the secret rapture and escaping the tribulation. People don't look to see what Jesus specifically says about how he will come back. We just need to read and study for ourselves. Now, continuing on, verse 6, But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. Now, who is the Comforter? 
This is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, it is a good thing that I go away because when I go away, the Comforter will come to you. I will send him unto you. Now, when we read Scripture, all we have to do is go to the book of Acts and we see that after Jesus departed, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early Christian church. Pentecost. We have seen in the history of this earth the outpouring of the power of the Holy Spirit upon God's professed people. And the question is, do we have that kind of experience with God today? Do we have the fervor of the apostles, of Peter, of Paul, of the apostle John the Revelator, who were willing to put their lives on the line and go to the farthest reaches of the earth to take the gospel to the then-known world in their generation? Do we have that fervor and that zeal from the power of the Holy Spirit to take this message to the world around us? Because one sign that gives evidence that the Holy Spirit is poured out in our lives is a zeal to share the truth of God's word with a lost and dying world. And as God's people in the last days, we have the most precious truths ever committed to mortal man, more so than the apostles had in their day. We have a more powerful and exciting message to give and so we see that when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, the apostles in their generation went to the then-known world with the gospel. Now, you know, it's interesting. Ellen White tells us that in the last days, the latter rain will be poured out. And you know how, you've probably heard this, how many times more powerful is the latter rain going to be than Pentecost? She says ten times. Ten times more powerful than Pentecost. Now let me tell you something. Based on this passage of Scripture, if the latter rain is ten times more powerful than Pentecost, and if the apostles faced persecution from the professed people of God and were put out of the synagogues and were even killed, and the people who did so thought that they were doing God's service, God is going to pour out the latter rain with ten times more power because he knows the opposition is going to be that much more powerful. You don't think Satan doesn't know what's going to happen in the last days? You don't think Satan's going to excite opposition in a more powerful manner than he did in, with what the early Christian church faced? So God, who is all-powerful, praise God, we don't have to worry about all the opposition in the world that the devil puts against us because when God pours out his power, the devil can't stop us. But what we see is we will have to face these kind of trials and opposition in the last day. And, you know, just listening to the prayer request time this morning, it's clear God's people are going through trials and persecutions. I can attest to that even in my own family of some of the issues that we are going through right now and how the devil is ramping things up. But you know, we should praise God for those trials 
because it's these kind of trials that are preparing us for what is, go what is going to come. And if the Lord didn't allow us to have our faith tested now, we wouldn't be ready for the major trials and persecutions when they come. And so we can, even though it's not fun, so to speak, we can thank God that he is allowing our faith to be tested and to grow. Now, this is where we get into the heart of what I'm going to talk about today. Starting in verse 8, notice what the Holy Spirit did through the apostles. What was it? What was the work of the Holy Spirit? Starting in verse 8. And when he is come, he will reprove or convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So what is the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to convince the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now did you realize that in those three broad categories, you can preach the entire Seventh-day Adventist message? Yes. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. You have our message in those three components. And that is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. He is trying to convince the world. What is sin? What is righteousness? What is judgment? Why is it that these are the three things that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do when he comes? And notice in verse 13, it says, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. So we can find all of truth within these concepts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And as you will see as we go through Sin and righteousness help us to understand how to stand before God in the judgment. And I'm going to look at each of these three things now. The first topic that we're going to look at is the topic of sin. Now, let's continue on here. Jesus explains why the Holy Spirit reproves or convinces the world of each one of these things. I could give you my opinion, but rather than do so, I'll just show you why Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convince the world of each of these three things. Notice verse 9. The Holy Spirit will convince the world of sin because they believe not on me. So the world does not believe on Christ. And because of that, the Holy Spirit will convince the world of what sin is because the world does not believe on Christ. Now, as we look at Scripture and look at what sin is, we know some of the verses I'm going to show you. 1 John 3, 4 specifically says that sin is the transgression of the law. And LMY specifically says that is the only definition for what sin is. You know, <clears throat> sin, which is the transgression of God's law, is not something to be taken lightly. One of the key works of the Holy Spirit is to convince the world of sin, which is the transgression of the law. And, in, and yet, in the Christian world today, Sin has almost become fashionable. 
We try to be as much like the world as we can and still call ourselves Christians. We, should, we throw in just a little bit of Christianity so that we can say, well, we're different than the world. We at least pray before we start class or something like that. But sin is still sin. And you go even into perhaps Adventist churches and you hear speakers telling stories of how they sin over and over again and yet, praise God, I'm still covered by his righteousness. And yet, Scripture says that the Holy Spirit is to convince the world of sin. Sin is not to be taken lightly. Sin put Jesus on the cross. One sin got Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. Sin is not a minor problem. And the Holy Spirit, when He comes into the world and into the church, one of His key roles is to show the world sin is sin. Sin put Jesus on the cross. Sin is not to be taken lightly. And we know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned. And 1 John 3.8, let me read this, tells us how serious sin is. 1 John 3.8 says, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Notice, that is serious and strong language. Sin is the transgression of the law. He who commits sin is of the devil. There is no mincing of words here in Scripture. <clears throat> and you know, I, I long for the day when more and more you will hear the message. Instead of people saying, well, I'm only human. I just sin and I sin and I sin. And that's the, that's the norm for humanity. What about Jude 24? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Amen. The Holy Spirit is going to bring that message back to our church. Now, if it is true that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of sin, and if sin is the transgression of the law, and if the wages of sin is death, and if all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that means that every single one of us need to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us about when we have sinned. We all have needed at some point and still need the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and minds and tell us that is sin. That is the transgression of the law, and the wages of sin is death. And God loves us too much to want us to die. He wants to save each one of us. <clears throat> you know, the Holy Spirit is always there to remind us of what is right and what is wrong. It kind of reminds me of my recent trip across the country with Joel. We drove from California, and I did a fair amount of the driving, and I always know when I'm going over the speed limit, because out of the corner of my eye, I start to see this hand pushing down, like, time to slow down, Norm, slow down. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, Norman, you're going too fast. Or... <clears throat> She'll catch, with her eyes, she'll see the, the police car way up ahead. And without saying, saying anything, she'll point. 
<laughs> so I did not get a speeding ticket at all on that trip. So I'm thankful for Joel in many ways. <clears throat> now, what would have happened if Joel had maybe been taking a nap and I had been speeding and I had gotten pulled over? What if I had told the, the police officer, well, you know, I mean, I drive the speed limit 99% of the time. Why are you pulling me over this time? Sorry, you were breaking the law right then when I caught you. And that's it. Now, you know, <clears throat> Joelle may forget to remind me at some point in the future, and I may get a speeding ticket when she's in the car, and I really hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> but we never have that excuse with the Holy Spirit. We always know when we are about to choose to do something wrong, we hear that still small voice, and you know you do. Each one of us has the conviction from the Holy Spirit of what is right and what is wrong. The Holy Spirit never messes up. He is always there to point out the right way and to help us to avoid the wrong way. And one of the ways he does so, as Romans 7, 7 tells us, is that the, the law points out what sin is. Paul says, I had not known sin, but by the law. And you know, the very fact that all of us have sinned is also evidence that we all need a Savior. And if you look again at, at John 16, verse 9, the Holy Spirit convi convinces the world of sin because they believe not on me, but the most basic text in all of Christianity, John 3.16, reminds us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16 tells us that the Holy Spirit is working to get us to believe in Jesus. Because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God because at some point in our lives, we have not really believed in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit wants us to believe so that, the, that sin will not condemn us and that we can be saved. So one of the works of the Holy Spirit in taking care of the sin problem is to help us believe that Jesus is our Savior. However, James 2.19 tells us that the devils believe and tremble, and they're clearly not saved. So there's got to be something more to this whole thing about believing to be saved. And this segues into the next point. First, we see that the Holy Spirit convinces the world of sin. Then we see that the Holy Spirit convinces the world of righteousness. Now, why does Jesus say that the Holy Spirit needs to convince the world of righteousness? Notice what verse 10 says. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Now, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, while I was here on this earth, I was a living demonstration of righteousness. Jesus 
on this earth was a living demonstration of righteousness. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he points out what sin is so that we will know what is right and what is wrong. But beyond that, the Holy Spirit points out what is righteousness because Jesus is not here to give a living demonstration in bodily form as he was for the 33 years on this earth. Now we can read about it in scripture to see how Jesus lived his life. But this is one of the things that Jesus is trying to bring out here. Jesus is saying, while I was here on this earth, I was a living demonstration of righteousness. But the work of the Holy Spirit will be so powerful that he will make the believers living demonstrations of righteousness. And you know, one of the things that we as God's people, we need to come up higher in, is we need to be living demonstrations of the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Amen. It's one thing to talk about the righteousness of Christ and people get into these arguments of what part of righteousness saves you and what part is just a fruit and this and that. But the bottom line in Scripture is the point of being a, a Christian is to be a living demonstration of the righteousness of Christ. And the church, imagine, let's just say, that the Holy Spirit had done his work in each one of our lives that are here today. And we all walked in as living demonstrations of the righteousness of Christ. Imagine the power coming out of the Fair Plain Church if every one of us here were a living demonstration of the righteousness of Christ. Amen. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit, first he points out and says, this is sin. This is wrong. And by the grace of God, we repent of our sin. The Holy Spirit leads us to repent and we turn away and we've been forgiven for our sins. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live the righteous life of Jesus Christ here on this earth. That is the work of the Holy Spirit, to convince the world of sin because they believe not on me. So then he gets the world to believe that Jesus died for our sins. And not only this, he convinces the world of righteousness because Jesus isn't here on this earth anymore. But then the world says, oh, those people, they have the righteousness of Christ. And then the question of what the righteousness of Christ is will become very clear. And, you know, you hear the stories of issues at various churches and the things that divide churches and how politics will come in and power struggles will take place and people are trying to put themselves in a position of power and it's like this is the this is God's professed church and yet people are using the methods of the devil to try to gain power and how can the righteousness of Christ be demonstrated to the world if we're trying to do everything that's contrary to Christ's character? 
So here we are living in the last days and what God is looking for are spirit-filled people who will be allowed to be used by the spirit to be demonstrations of the righteousness of Christ. You know, there's a number of things that I was planning to say about the righteousness of Christ. I will just say this. In the book of Romans, we have a living demonstration of the righteousness of Christ. He's called Abraham. In Romans chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. See, the Holy Spirit convinces the world of sin because they believe not on God, but Abraham believed. So here's a demonstration of a human being who believed. So it's not just Jesus who had this experience of righteousness. Now we see Abraham, and he's the father of the faithful. Now what does it mean when it says Abraham believed? If you go back to Genesis 15, you'll see that Abraham believed that God was creator. And because God said that Abraham would have a child past childbearing age, he and Sarah, Abraham believed, oh, God is creator. He has the creative power of his word to make happen what he says will happen. And so because Abraham believed in the creative power of God, God could say, you're righteous. And then you get to the end of Romans 4, and it says... specifically about Abraham's belief. If you look at verses 20 through 23, it says, he was fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. And the question is then, do you really believe in God? Are you fully persuaded that what God promised he's able also to perform? When the Bible says, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, do you say, yeah, but my human experience doesn't match what the Bible says? You know, we need to get to the point in our Christian experience where we stop looking at our human experience or our trusted spiritual mentors' spiritual experiences. We just need to look at what the Bible says for what the kind of experience we should be having in this time in earth's history. And Abraham, he didn't tell God, well, God, you don't understand. Sarah, she's 90 years old, and um, she's not going to believe this. She's not going to believe that we'll have children. Now there's no way. Abraham's faith was so powerful that not only did God use him, but his faith produced fruit in Sarah. And she had faith. And we should be having such powerful, saving faith at this point in earth's history that other people will say, man, that person has such strong faith, I'm going to believe in the same God as well. And we see at the end of Romans 4, starting in verse 23, it says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Do you realize this is talking about the righteousness of Christ? Abraham had righteousness imputed to him, but it was not just for him. It's for us also if we believe. If we are fully persuaded that what God promised, he's able also to perform. And what specifically does Paul say? 
It's if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And what is that talking about? Well, if you go to Romans chapter 6, we see in verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also we should walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. What Paul is saying is when you believe and if you have righteousness imputed to you, this means that you believe that the same God, the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise you up to walk a new life. And you might be tempted to think, but God, you don't understand. You don't understand my past. You don't understand the baggage that I live with. You don't understand the kind of parents I had or the kind of people I went to school with or the friends that I have and the bad habits that I had. You don't understand, but God is saying, yes, I do. You who have lived a life that is dead in trespasses and sins, if you believe in the power of God, just as God raised up Jesus from the dead, he will raise you up to live a new life. The old life will be dead. The new life will be a life that mirrors the life of Christ. And that is the kind of righteousness that the Holy Spirit is trying to convince the world of right now. The Holy Spirit is not going around giving a message. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is your Savior and you can keep living a life of sin, the old life. What the Bible says is that when you give your life to Christ, He will raise you up to walk in newness of life. Now how specific is this? When you get to verse 9, it says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. What Paul is saying, look, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't like he's going to keep coming back to Calvary and dying over and over and over again. Because death has no more dominion over him. And just as the Father raised Jesus from the dead, he raises us up to walk in newness of life. Notice what verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Do you believe that? God is saying, look, Jesus doesn't keep dying anymore. Death has no more dominion over him because he was raised up from the dead. And if you have died, as Scripture says, that we are dead with Him, that we are, the old man is crucified with Him, that means sin has no more dominion over us, and that means we don't keep sinning and sinning and sinning, because by the power of God, He gives us victory. Now, we do have the promise, if any man sin, we have an advocate, and He's faithful and just to forgive us, but that's not God's A plan. You understand that? That's plan B. Plan A is for us to, keep, to be kept from falling. Thankfully, we have a merciful God who forgives us, but that's plan B. Plan A is now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. And so the work of the Holy Spirit in these last days is to convince the world of righteousness, and he will do so when he has a group of people in God's church who are living demonstrations of the righteousness of Christ. <clears throat> in our last point, we see that the Holy Spirit 
convinces the world of judgment. In ver- this is John 16, verse 11. The Holy Spirit convinces the world of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? We see that the Holy Spirit convinces the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now, if you go to John chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, we see what Jesus is talking about. First, we see here in this passage, and starting in verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. So Jesus on the cross demonstrates to the universe this is really what Satan is all about. And so the prince of this world is cast out. Jesus as our Savior on the cross gives a demonstration of the character of God. And so there was no more sympathy for Satan in heaven. And if you go to John chapter 14, verse 30, this idea continues. Jesus says, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. So here's Jesus on the cross. He's the Savior of the world. He's dying for our sins. And Satan comes up to the cross, and he realizes he looks at the life of Christ, and he can't find anything to condemn him. It's game over. Jesus has proven Satan's charges false at the cross. The prince of this world is cast out. The prince of this world comes and has nothing in him. And Ellen White has a comment about this verse. The first one is found in Faith I Live By, page 23. Here we read, The Savior took upon himself the infirmities of humanity and lived a sinless life that men might have no fear that because of the weakness of human nature they could not overcome. And then she quotes John 14, 30. The prince of this world cometh, said Jesus, and hath nothing in me. Notice what she says. There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin. Not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. So Satan comes to Jesus on the cross and it's like he looks at Jesus and it's like Jesus didn't even yield by a thought, not even so much as by an action. And we say, well, that's Jesus. He was the son of God. He lived a perfect life and he had the power of heaven behind him. And that's just the way Jesus lived his life. But do you know what the very next sentence in this passage reads? So it may be with us. You know what that means? When John 14, 30 says, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, what we see from Ellen White is, is so it may be with us. Do you realize that in the judgment, Satan, it will will reach a point where Satan will come and he will not be able to find anything in us? And that's because of the mercy of God that our sins have been forgiven. But it's not only that. It's because we as God's people living in the judgment have learned to have the experience of Christ. Just looking at some of these passages again, 
There was in him nothing that responded to Satan's sophistry. He did not consent to sin. Not even by a thought did he yield to temptation. So it may be with us. And then she goes on and says, we need not retain one sinful propensity. And you know, people say, well, Christ didn't have sinful propensities. We're told we need not retain one. Now, that's Faith I Live by, page 23. So in the judgment, we see that first Christ, when the prince of the world came to him, the prince of the world could find nothing against him. And in the judgment, there's going to be a contention over the people of God. And it's interesting, in Great Controversy, page 623, Ellen White talks about this very same passage, again, from John 14.30. And this is where we see that we as God's last day people have a specific role in this judgment hour crisis. Notice what Ellen White says on page 623, so it's easy to remember. Faith I live by, page 23, and Great Controversy, page 623. Okay, notice what Ellen White says. Now, while our great high priest is making the atonement for us, we should seek to become perfect in Christ. Now the question is, what does it mean to become perfect in Christ? Well, let Ellen White speak for herself in the very next sentence. Not even by a thought could our Savior be brought to yield to the power of temptation. So what does it mean to be perfect in Christ? To not even by a thought be brought to yield to the power of temptation. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we really can have that experience in this time of earth's history. Notice, and she goes on to say, Satan finds in human hearts some point where he can gain a foothold, some sinful desire is cherished, by means of which his temptations assert their power. But Christ declared of himself, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. John 14, 30. Continuing on, Satan could find nothing in the Son of God that would enable him to gain the victory. He had kept his father's commandments, and there was no sin in him that Satan could use to his advantage. And so you say, yeah, but that was Jesus. But notice what she says. This is the condition in which those must be found who shall stand in the time of trouble. So notice what Ellen White says. The experience of Satan coming and finding nothing in Christ, not even by a thought could he yield to temptation. She says, so it may be with us. But more specifically, this is to be the condition of those who stand in the time of trouble. Who are those who stand in the time of trouble? That's the 144,000. There's going to come a time in the judgment when probation has closed and Jesus will point to his last day people, his 144,000 who came out of the last day, second advent movement. And Satan will say, yeah, those are all those people that I got to sin. You know, remember when they lost their temper? Remember when they did this? Remember when they did that? But then in the judgment... Satan will come and he will pour out all of his temptations and all of his power against God's last day people in Jacob's time of trouble. And yet God's last day people will have the experience of Christ. They will not even by a thought yield to temptation. They will be like Christ. And At that point, 
It can be said, the prince of the world cometh and finds nothing in the 144,000. Because the 144,000 are just like Jesus Christ. So as we look, in conclusion, at what the work of the Holy Spirit is in these last days, the work of the Holy Spirit convinces the world of sin, what sin really is. The only definition for sin is that is the transgression of the law. And when we understand the malignity of sin and that our sins have put Jesus on the cross, then we will repent of our sins and we will come to him for his righteousness. And at that point, God can then make us living demonstrations of the righteousness of Christ here on this earth. And in the judgment hour, which we have been living in since 1844, God will make us living demonstrations of the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, God will be vindicated to end the judgment. You realize that God could begin the judgment because of what had happened up until the judgment through the sins of papal Rome. But God will be vindicated to finish the judgment when he has a group of people here on this earth that are living demonstrations of the righteousness of Christ. And so as we think about what is coming in the future, may we seek God earnestly by prayer and faith every day pleading with God that he will pour out his spirit in our lives. You realize that we must have the early reign experience with the Holy Spirit every day first of conversion and of surrender. When we hear that still small voice speaking to us saying, don't go this way, go this way, that we follow that voice. Because how can the Holy Spirit be poured out on us in latter rain measures if we're not learning how to follow the voice of the Holy Spirit right now? And so God is preparing a people. He's preparing a people so that he can pour out his spirit so that one day soon Revelation 18 will be fulfilled and the earth will be lightened with the glory of God and the messages, the three angels' messages will go out with the everlasting gospel proclaiming the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus and we will be able to proclaim the faith of Jesus because we will have that experience. So may we be faithful May we allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in our lives because the Holy Spirit wants to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. And when He has a group of people that are fully surrendered, then we will see the great day of God. It's not going to take long. You look at the world around us, it's not going to take long. And I just pray that each one of us here will be found faithful on that day so that God will be able to use His Spirit through our lives to demonstrate the righteousness of Christ to this world. May we be faithful.